right, good evening, everyone, and welcome. This is Twist Gaming, where you get to play board games with us. This is our Great Game Hunters podcast, where we talk about the ins and outs of various monsters in Kingdom Death. And tonight we will be talking about The Watcher, as well as the whole people of the Lantern Campaign. Uh, but first off, who are we? I am Matt, and I am joined here with Fen and Josh. Say hi, guys. Hi, guys. Greetings! I like the enthusiasm there, Fen. All right, so first off, I would like to point out that we are live on Twitch, so we're going to be getting questions coming in from chat uh, throughout this, and we'll be saving those for the end for the most part. But any interactions, that's where it's coming from. And as well, we'd like to point out that this stream and all of this week's streams are brought to you by Druid City Games and the Grim Forest, currently live on Kickstarter. So guys, go check that out as well. So what was our last presentation of Great Game Hunters? If you could recap us, guys, because I wasn't here for that one. No, it was just nothing more than a question and answer session um, with the Kickstarter about to close, just chatting about what was good from the current batch of expansions and bits and pieces, and a little bit of a chat about uh, experiences playing the game, some fun stories, um, and uh, sort of which expansions we're most excited about coming up. Very cool. Uh, and so what did we want to get into first this evening, guys? Well... Personally, I don't think you can start talking about the Watcher without talking about the Hooded Knight first, considering the Hooded Knight is meant to prime you for the Watcher. Sounds pretty correct to me. Uh, so first up, the Hooded Knight. Uh, a little bit of lore behind that one. No, Fen? Um, there is some, yes. Uh, you'll have to give me a moment. I'll have to get the rule book. And also, I need to turn down my mic a bit, apparently. All right, so... There we are. How's that? That sounds much better to me. How about you, Josh? Sounds good to me. Okay, all right. So uh, let's let me just get my rule book open. Um, now, the hooded knight, uh, or the hooded stranger, as he's also referred to, is a part of the Twilight Order, which is something we've had little glimpses into here and there, mostly via the extra models that have been released in resin um, from uh, by Poots over the year. So we've had things like the um, the Two Twilight Knight resins, the pinup resin of Allison. The um, we just most recently have the the guy who actually makes the weapons, um, and one of his apprentices with the um, blacksmith. So the uh, the order appears to be based around preserving knowledge and protecting it, which makes sense when you look at the context of the Watcher. Uh, and also, they battle and fight using these Twilight swords, which are uh, Poot's very fond of the design of them because you see them crop up on a lot of his messengers as well. The messenger of courage wields one. Um, I think we also see one on the pinup order knight. Um, and the messenger of humanity, I believe, has one as well, if I remember correctly, is chained up behind him. Um, I can't really blame Poots because the design of the Twilight Sword is pretty cool. Um, and they are this sentient blade um, that is very difficult to master and handle. Now the hooded knight turns up when you have how many innovations is it guys? It's five innovations. Correct. Yes, I knew that. I play people of the lantern quite a bit. I, of course I remember. Um, and uh, the first time he turns up uh, he has apparently inscrutable motives and you have to roll on his mysterious agenda. On a one or two, he basically, well, 
slashes up a couple of members of your population um, with a flash of steel and blood. So you lose two people and uh, he will return four years later on a three, four, five or a six. Uh, he insists on training the um, uncouth survivors. I say he it could be a she. We have seen female uh, members of the order in martial combat. Up to two survivors may spend three resources each to learn the mighty strike fighting art. And then the hooded knight leaves with unfinished business and will return four years later in the timeline. Then on a seven, eight or nine or ten. He will force a tattered parcel into the hands of the returning survivor with the most hunt XP. If there's a tie, you have to randomize. And then he leaves with unfinished business to come back in four years. Um, uh, on a 10, if you have records, um, the innovation records, then you have to roll a dice. And either on a 1 to 3, the records gets destroyed because the Hooded Knight's particularly disturbed and upset with these records. And he smashes them up, is the implication there. Or on a 4+, plus. Uh, the watcher gets moved back five years on the timeline. Um, now, uh, this is sort of worth, like, I think it, it sort of ties in. The records are linked to manipulating the watcher. I think with records, you can bring the watcher closer to occurring earlier because sacrifice pushes it back. Is my remembering correct there? I believe so, but I've never used that actual mechanic, so I'm not sure. I've used sacrifice to extend the timeline a bit. So yeah, records brings it closer. Yes, that's right. Um, all right. Uh, well, Josh, do you have a copy of the promo version of the tattered parcel? Because that's actually more interesting than the base game one. Um, we can the, obviously discuss the base game one. I have the cloak as well. I don't uh, have the actual sticker. You don't have the sticker. Okay. Uh, I do have the sticker. Okay. So, um, Normally, in the base game as it stands right now, without the promo, you will just get the Twilight Sword rare gear, uh, which we'll describe in a short while. Um, that goes into the survivor with the most hunt XP. It's a cursed weapon, so they're stuck with it. Um, and they're allowed to uh, pick Twilight Sword as their weapon proficiency type. They're not forced to. If you have the promo... You also get the Blue Lantern and the Dormant Twilight Cloak. So we'll have a look at all three of these pieces of gear. Um, but essentially, the Hooded Knight arrives. Either he butchers a few people, trains them up, or most of the time, uh, which it seems to be his objective. I say most of the time. Actually, it's 40% of the time. He will look for somebody to wield a Twilight Sword, whoever is most experienced of the people who've just been out hunting. I guess he's not interested in people who are sitting in, around inside the settlement, regardless of how um, how powerful they might be. This is worth always remembering with regards to who he's going to give the um, parcel to, because when we discuss a little bit more, that's going to be relevant. Now, the last thing the Hooded Knight does is event he'll return within four years. Now, this keeps happening over and over throughout the whole of the campaign, pretty much. Um, you can't get rid of the Hooded Knight once he starts turning up. But eventually, if you have someone with a sword, instead of him coming in and potentially fosting a parcel onto someone, he is instead going to confront them in a duel. Now, Josh, um, do you have the duel uh, table available? Yeah, I got it here. Could you go through the duel table for everyone? Sure. So you roll a d10, and you add the weapon proficiency of the Twilight Sword to your roll result. Um, a 1 through 3. The survivor perishes quickly. Disappointed, the knight leaves, never to return. Um, 
Four through seven, the survivor is badly wounded, suffered the gaping chest wound, severe chest injury the knight has unfinished business, which means he comes back in four years. Eight through nine, gain one level of weapon proficiency, lose all survival. You cannot gain survival the settlement phase. The knight has unfinished business. The ten, um, you gain one level of weapon proficiency, and the knight has unfinished business. Eleven plus, you gain two levels of weapon proficiency, plus one insanity, plus one survival, and the knight has unfinished business. All right. Um, did you mention the modifiers for the Twilight Sword there? Yeah, I said the weapon level uh, is... Yeah, sorry. It's all right. Yeah, I did... I did miss the, the right at the start. I'm just trying to uh, find something on um, in my docs, but that's fine. Um, so obviously with this table, it's pretty bad for you if you've not been training at the Twilight Sword. Um, so the game kind of encourages you to get out there and use the sword. Um, otherwise, you're quite likely to lose the survivor who's um, carrying it. Uh, if you do, interestingly, on a one to three, if they do get slaughtered holding the sword, that's it. That's the end of the hooded knight. He's, he's disappointed in your settlement and he's like, well, tough luck. I'm gone. Otherwise, he's going to keep coming back, keep testing, keep training and basically working on the, um, survivor, his chosen survivor who's wielding the sword. Uh, now, uh, shall we have a look at the sword itself? All right. So the sword itself, um, the Twilight Sword, it's a weapon, melee, two-handed, finesse, and other. Uh, it's got a one speed, a star for accuracy, and a nine. Uh, it's got slow, cursed, cumbersome, silent, and replaceable, um, and it gains devastating two when fighting the Watcher. And the little note for the accuracy is the accuracy is nine minus the Twilight Sword proficiency level. So the more proficient you are in it, at it, the easier it is to hit. Yes, yeah. Now, one of the problems with this, of course, is it's sentient, so you can't wield it unless uh, you're insane. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah. So yep. you can't wield it um, unless you're insane. It's slow, and it's also cumbersome, so you have to use both your movement and your activation to actually attack with it. Yeah, it's quite a, a, quite a problem. And um, that's where the promo items came in, or at least one of them. And these were also, I believe they're going to be 1.5 changes, I think. Is that right? I don't think we've had an official confirmation about that, but yeah. that's the hope. Yes. Um, well, it, indeed. So the dormant uh, cloak um, actually makes life with the Twilight Sword a lot easier to deal with. Uh, it's a um, it's item heavy uh, order other accessory. Uh, it's um, it's got a blue upwards facing. Affinity is three armor to the head. You, because it's an accessory, you can wear this with other gear. It's actually unique, which unlike the, which is different to the Twilight Sword, the Twilight Sword is not actually unique. And, um, there's a little sort of odd sort of thing that we're going to discuss in a, a little bit later on with regards to this, where there's, there's sort of some strange interactions that can happen. Um, you can't do it in the core campaign, but I'm not sure if we're going to be discussing the Twilight Sword again, so I think it's probably worth mentioning it here. Um, anyway, uh, the cloak's ability is to ignore sentience and all gear, but if you have three plus understanding, you can't depart wearing this cloak. So this cloak kind of gives you the ability to use sentient gear while, while you're not insane. It's sort of a little help for newer players. Um, it's not cursed, so you can shuffle it around between other people, but it is irreplaceable, just like the sword. So if somebody dies holding this, it's gone. Yeah, but you can also use it with the butcher's cleavers. Anything else that's sentient? Uh, they're, um, well, the blue lantern is. 
Well, the blue Which comes is, with it. But is is yeah. anything else in the core game besides the? Uh, I think there is some others. Um, if you would give me one moment, um, if you ever talk about the blue lantern, you have that there. Yeah, I got that here. So there's the blue. If lantern. you talk about, yep. Uh, it's an item lantern order. I don't know what that one keyword is. Other. Uh, it's sentient and it's cursed. Um, and for an activation, you could suffer 2d10 brain damage and reveal HA ugh, hit location cards until you reveal the trap. Put them back in the same order. Limit once per showdown. Yep. Yeah, that's a really handy item right there, especially if you uh, you got a set number of health left for the monster and you kind of want to just get it out of the way. Like, oh, can we just go balls to the wall and uh, do all of our high-speed attacks now and hopefully kill a damn thing? Indeed. Um, I'm just trying to remember with cursed items, they're effectively replaceable, aren't they? Um, Pretty much. I mean, I guess if you die, that means you can't wear it anymore. Um, I just look at, just I want to check the keyword because in my yeah. mind I was remembering something that yeah uh, yes that's right a gear special rule the gear cannot be removed from the gear grid for any reason if the survivor dies archive this gear um, it's more just of it suddenly struck me that the twilight sword being cursed and irreplaceable is kind of a bit redundant because the twilight sword being cursed is automatically irreplaceable anyway it's not a big issue but. It uh, is sort of like there was no need for it to have irreplaceable printed on the card. Just a little nitpick because I'm being a pedant, apparently. Um, yeah, I, I really like the Blue Lantern as well. I think it's great. Um, being cursed is kind of a bit of a bummer because I think you sort of you can't use this one particularly early on because that level of brain damage is is pretty significant. But that is really powerful. That can give you a huge amount of information for a showdown. It can give you a long streak of uh, attacks where you feel very safe. I mean, if you have, um, what's the principle? Except the darkness. I mean, if you yep. just do one roll in the spirit, brain trauma table, so that's it. It's not, it just gets rid of a lot of insanity. Yeah. It, it does. It's, it, it does indeed. I think you can't, it, it's tricky because of course it deals so much brain damage that, um, is sentient. So, it's a little tricky to get it working repeatedly every um, showdown because obviously you're going to take a load of brain damage. You're probably going to drop your insanity to zero. I think you know you can play, use certain items that will let you pump up your insanity at the start of the hunt or start of the showdown when departing. Um, stuff like the Phoenix gear, the Phoenix folds will do that. The Phoenix gauntlet, they both give plus one insanity when you depart. Uh, the gimp mask does as well. The leather mask does plus two insanity. So you probably have to play around a bit and have a hodgepodge set of armor if you're going to manage to use the blue lantern every single time because you can't shift it from one survivor to the next. But yeah, the um, twilight sword essentially is uh, the hooded knight giving you um, a magic bullet because obviously the big thing about this is it's devastating two versus the watcher. So a well powered up. Um, Twilight Sword is very effective, but of course, the catch is if you attain Twilight Sword Mastery, your survivor's going to leave the settlement. So you really, it's quite a balancing act. Once you're at um, rank six, basically the sword is about as powerful as it can be, um, with the exception of I think you can become more accurate, because that's proficiency level, isn't it? That's the number. Yeah, that's off, but yeah, that's what it's off. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, that's that's kind of it. I think the, the Hooded Knight sort of exists as the People of the Lanterns, um, well, support thing to help you get through with the Watcher. It was designed to 
give assistance to people um, in dealing with the the Nemesis fight there. Uh, on the whole, how do you guys feel about the Watcher? The Watcher, the Hooded Knight. Uh, personally, I don't really care for it that much. It's an interesting story event, but I really feel that the Twilight Sword is more of a hindrance to our characters, uh, mainly just because it's really a pain in the ass to get its weapon proficiency up early in the game, just because your accuracy is so atrocious. And then, as you mentioned before, the uh, it's got cumbersome and slow and all of that jazz. Yeah, yeah. not to mention you have to duel every four years or so. Uh, Fang, can you mention really quick on the... I don't have the weapon proficiency card in front of me, but the extra benefits the Twilight Sword gets as you level it up, because it works a lot differently than the other weapon masteries. Yes, yeah, so instead of the normal break points, this one has a break at rank 2, which removes cumbersome from the sword. That's, like, very important, because the sword is an awful to use while it has cumbersome. Then at rank 4, uh, the Twilight Sword loses slow, you ignore slow on it, and you get plus 2 speed, so it becomes a speed 3 weapon. And then at rank 6, it gains deadly. And of course, for every um, proficiency point you go up in it, it becomes more accurate as well. Yeah, so it's an interesting weapon. I think I think the fact that it starts off with almost impossible to use makes it a lot harder. Um because starting off it's harder than fist and tooth to use. And it takes more time to do anything with it. So mm-hmm. my thought is maybe changing it slightly for one point five. What what would you like to see to the Twilight Sword to actually make it something you would use then? Me? I think you might want to ask Matt first, because I've got some very choice words to talk about this whole thing. (laughs) Okay, so yeah, my my concept with this is that, yes, it is a pain in the ass to ramp up, but I think it would be worth it if you didn't just disappear when it max-leveled for your weapon proficiency. If you can keep the survivor around, or even just have it where you have to shelve your survivor until the Watcher fight. Uh, that might be a viable option as well. Uh, but just the fact that you have to ramp up as quickly as possible with this Twilight Sword for it to even be usable, and then all of a sudden, if you cap out, you, uh, you're you gone forever. So you wind up just kind of putting your guy on the side and forgetting about him anyways. Or you end up changing your weapon proficiency to reset, which isn't very um, desirable either. Right, because then you're you're losing everything you just did, and... Best case scenario is the survivor has a few couple of plus stats that you get to keep. Indeed. All right. Uh, so what are your choice words there, Fen? I was about to say, do you want to hear how I feel about this whole hooded night thing? I have a feeling you don't really care for it much. <laughs> what gave it away? Okay, so first of all, disclaimer, I actually think the law, the ideas behind this are solid. The idea of there being a nemesis and you be given the tools to help you against it is a nice bit of foreshadowing. When you think about it, the hooded stranger is the first indicator you have that there's something wrong in the place. Um, especially when you play on a later run, you realize the knight's turning up to try and get this settlement. It's like, can this settlement withstand the watcher that is coming? Can we protect? Because the settlement, uh, sorry, the Twilight Order is about knowledge. They're about protecting knowledge. And Watchers devour the memories and dreams of people. They they live upon that. So they literally erase the experiences of, of people. So you can see why the Twilight Order stands against them. That said, 
this is a great example of where there's just too much in the way of trying to jam bits of lore in and not enough on the mechanics. You can tell, first of all, because basically the thing had to be patched by the dormant Twilight Cloak to not make it completely like my survivor sucks in the early game, which actually the dormant Twilight Cloak's a nice idea. And I think it's probably the best item you get from the uh, from this whole experience. So I recommend the Allison promo set if you can get your hands on it. It's absolutely worth it. Of course, you may want to wait to find out whether these cards are going to be in 1.5 in the expansion pack or not, um, because the uh, you're not going to get more than one of the Twilight Cloak because it's unique. Um, but the thing is, the when you put us all together, the Twilight Sword itself, okay, this is like, it's a cursed thing that's just lumbered on one of your players. Now, speaking of somebody who has had... Three steel swords, three steel shields, and two thunderbolts thrust upon them by the gold um, smoke knight in the most recent campaign. I can tell you that being forced to have a cursed weapon is really frustrating. It sucks. Um, it, it's just like I, it winds me up no end. It's like I don't mind if you have a choice to take a cursed weapon. It's like fine, but the, this is like this is dumping it on you. However, you can gain the shit out of this. Because basically, if you know the Hooded Knight's turning up, you send a bunch of spods out on a hunt instead, like a bunch of zero hunt XP idiots. One of them gets the sword. And then you just chuck him into the settlement and just go, well, sorry, mate, you're not training the Twilight Sword at all. You can fight the Twilight Knight each year, and if you're lucky, you might get better. But otherwise, on a 1-3, to three, you're dead and the Twilight Knight's gone. And we get to keep the, the cloak, we get to keep the uh, the lantern, and the sword is gone. And that's like, I, I don't I don't like that kind of stuff because that means you can game it. You can dump the sword, you can get rid of it, which in some way is nice, but I don't want that to be what I want to do. And to be honest, that's what I want. So, um, I mean, does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Oh, absolutely. It's this awesome mythical weapon in the lore of the game. And then when you get around to using it, it's kind of a pain in the ass, and then it's a hindrance because it messes with your strategy for whoever you brought out with uh, on the hunt, who's got the most hunt XP, and it makes you kind of resent the weapon, and you kind you want to want the weapon, you don't want to have to resent it, but that's what winds up happening. Yeah, and then you know, given that, given all the limitations of the sword, I love that it becomes more powerful, you become more skilled with it, but as you said, it's absolute garbage that you get the mastery and they leave. I mean. I would be okay if they left the settlement and you you were t- instructed to put the character sheet to one side, the survivor sheet, sorry, and then the watcher text had, if you have set a survivor aside for this, that they they were available for that fight, representing them coming back to kick ass, you know? I would be cool with that. If they depart with the sword and you and the first time you play, you're like, shit, they're gone now. Oh, well, um, all right. Fine, and then you fight the Watcher, and suddenly you're like, hey, boys, the cavalry's here. That would have been cool, you know? And not even shelving him, just having this kind of like, you know, oh, my God, he's come back. He's come back to, to save the day. So it's just, it just could be so much better than it is, and it's just so much stuffed into one thing and so many bits and pieces uh, attempt of to to create this law and this interesting thing that's a mess in the end of it and you do you end up resenting it and this is like i have i've said it time and time again i think the the hooded knight is a fucking dick okay he's one of the reasons i don't like playing people of the lantern too much because this is just isn't fun i mean don't get me wrong 
the katana dude is even worse and when we talk about the sunstalker people of the sun i'll have some choice words there um but still it's just eh. and finally when we get onto the watcher this is a silver bullet you don't need this is overkill against the watcher yeah i mean it's just not needed at all and when we as we discuss the watcher you'll see why but I just I want this to be like this hard thing that you work to that you attain when you get it it really means something and you don't have to do this balancing act where you're like oh should I change weapons or or should I send some people out who are some you know useless guys going to get the sword so I don't have to worry about it anymore so interesting side note um, I was talking to uh, Zachary Barish and he was when he first started he started playtesting and I guess the original Twilight Sword was really, really broken, and it got nerfed to hell, and it, it became what it is now. So the original Twilight Sword was apparently amazing. To be honest, this is an amazing weapon anyway. Once you fully unlock it, it's bonkers. Was it speed three? It could be accuracy two plus, nine strength, deadly. That's, you know, devastating two versus the Watcher. So I can't imagine what it was like beforehand. Yeah, it was, it was apparently something even, even better. I, I don't know what changes they made to it. I don't know what the original sword looked like, but yeah. And, uh, I would like it if I'd like to see. I, I think Pooch should, um, tweet that out sometime. This is what the Twilight Sword was originally. Yeah, that would be a pretty cool, uh, insight into the, uh, what actually happened with the Twilight Sword and why it is what it is. Right. Yeah. Uh, Josh, did you have anything more you want to say before I go on to this, like, annoying little thing I've discovered? Uh, no, I think that is it. Right. So this one little trick will make people hate you. Um, no. Uh, as it stands within the core campaign with no expansions, the Twilight Sword functions quite fine. But there is a little bit of an issue with Spidiculous. Um, now, I'm not going to go into massive detail here because I don't want to spoil Spidiculous. But essentially, uh, in this Spidiculous expansion, you can have a survivor get removed from your settlement temporarily. Now, this creates an unusual situation where the Twilight Sword is no longer in your settlement. Um, and as a consequence, if the Hooded Knight turns up while the sword's not there, he's going to look around, assume that your previous Twilight Sword wielder is gone, dead, and chuck another sword at you. And if you have the um, expansion, he'll chuck another Blue Lantern. Not a, a dormant Twilight Cloak, because that's unique. But it's not in your settlement, so I don't know. And set, thinking you shouldn't be able to get another Dormant Twilight Cloak. Um, oh no, the Dormant Twilight Cloak will still be in the settlement, sorry. The gear's back in the settlement when someone gets taken. But anyway, all of a sudden, you've got a second Twilight Sword lumbered on somebody else, and another Blue Lantern, which I don't mind having another Blue Lantern. But you can end up in a position where you, you can have multiple Twilight Swords. So this is because the Twilight Sword's not unique. It's a bit of a, a, a an odd situation. It's something you just want to bear in mind when you do play with Spidiculous. Don't. Unless you're planning to cheese things, don't have your uh, Twilight Sword wielder, you know, depart from the settlement for a while. So, Fen, what you what you got to do now is you got to do People of the Lantern with Spidey and and get four Twilight Swords and you'll go to the Watcher and just destroy him. Just because <laughs> you can. That, that that that's a new yeah. goal now. Well, uh, yeah, I could do that, uh, or um, I could play People of the Lantern with the variant Twilight Knight in training. And then have her get taken out of the settlement and then trigger the hooded knight and bring in three other swords, one after another by, you know, removing. I don't, actually, I, no, you can't get more than two swords, actually. 
because you can't have more than one person taken at a time. So you can't do it, unfortunately. Two swords is your maximum, which is boo. Yeah, we tried. For a sword that you don't even want like to begin with. Yeah. Yeah, you might as well just play a variant where you give four Twilight Swords out to everyone right at the beginning. One of them gets the dormant Twilight Cloak and they have to fight between each other. Uh, well, anyway, that's that's the Hooded Knight. That's the Twilight Sword. And in my opinion, it is one of the worst elements of People of the Lantern. Law-wise, it's really cool. The idea is really cool, but the execution is an absolute mess. It's pulling in a ton of different directions. It's got no real good focus, and it feels like a punishment. You look around online, you'll see people agreeing that on the whole, this sucks. They're like, why do I have to have the Twilight Sword? I've seen arguments from people saying, oh, I don't want it. I don't want it saddled on my great survivor. You know, but it, it sucks. And that's not what should be happening. People should be going, oh, I want to wield the sword. Me, me, me. But it doesn't do that, and it's because... It's because it's of this uh, this mastery program on it, basically, I think is what makes people hate it. So, yeah, the Twilight Order, a bunch of dicks. Is that how you really feel, Fen? They're a big bag of dicks. Giant size. Yeah, I can't stand them. Uh, to be honest, I like the idea that maybe they're like the, you know, they're not really good guys. But they're trying to do, you know, they, they do what needs needs to be done rather than um, what's necessarily right. And I think that might be the point of them. Um, I do like their interaction with the Watchers, but I think the mechanics of this thing sucks. And we I could carry on. But I don't know. I think it's about time we moved on to the Watcher itself. All right, so let's talk about the lore of the Watcher a little bit then. Fen, you want to... Uh, I don't know how much lore is out there. They, the, the main story doesn't tell you much. Yes, that's true. If you just give me one moment, I'm going to pull open what I do have on the, the Watcher Law, because I put my rule book down. Um, now, interestingly, the Resin Watcher on the Kingdom Death Store is one of the few models that was put up without any law whatsoever. So, indeed, we don't have that much direct law given to us. Uh, needless to say, um, the first thing that we have that gives us indication is the watched event, which we'll discuss in a, a bit of time. Um, that's when the, um, the survivors first realize that, uh, the middle of their center, uh, the middle of their settlement inside the lantern horde is actually this big giant jelly-like, um, womb is the only way to describe it, uh, with a really nasty creature. They call it the, their ultimate predator. There's a wonderful picture on the page next to Watch, which shows Lucy, Zachary, Alistair, and Urza all sort of looking at this, and Zachary's almost seizing in horror. I kind of like the idea that, that these guys, who are four prologue survivors, would even last this long. I mean, that's a rare, rare campaign. Um, the other things that we know about the Watcher is um, the way that the lantern years are counted is by lanterns extinguishing. So there's very gradually these these lanterns fade away, and once they're all gone, the watch will awaken. We know that when the watcher is defeated, the lanterns are extinguished, so the light in the lanterns, at least in people of the lantern, is tied to the watcher's power. Um, but uh, the description here is: we have long ago, ravenous beasts searched the darkness, using their keen senses to find their prey. In the distance, they saw a blooming pillar of light, surrounded by tasty morsels bustling in their tiny industry. Licking their chops, they approached, but the beasts halted mid-step. The wind carried a foul, menacing presence. Surely the beastly creatures were harmless. 
Yet the menacing warning persisted, felt in their very bones. Instinctively, the beasts turned away, seeking their meals elsewhere. So what we learn from this, what we learn from the whole thing is that sat at the middle of the settlement inside the Landon Horde is this watcher creature. This is like a cocoon where it's gone dormant. It's sitting there like a, what's the only way to describe it? Like a, it's like a lure, like a, a very patient pitcher plant, effectively, um, or maybe an antlion if you want. Um, it's, it's just sort of waiting to, to draw in the survivors, um, to bring them around it. And they're attracted and very gradually over time, the watcher awakens. Now it seems it doesn't really matter how many survivors are in the settlement, whether it wakes up or not. It's just going to happen after a certain amount of time with, with survivors doing things in and around. I think that's more of kind of a mechanical thing as opposed to a, um, an actual statement on with regards to the watcher. Uh, basically after time, it's going to wake up. So it's kind of a lure. I really think is the best way to think of it. It is kind of pretending to be one thing, pretending to be safety, pretending to be haven. And then it wakes up and goes dinner time. Um, if you lose to the watcher, then uh, basically it consumes everyone and everything and travels for an eon. So these watchers are damn efficient. I mean, you know, you, you eat, it, it feeds on one settlement and for an eon. It's, it's fine. It goes off for a wonder. That's uh considering it's probably eating what about between 10 or 20 survivors. That's, um that's a very efficient metabolism. But mm. my, my thing I sort of wonder about is actually how many of these watchers are around. So, uh, do you guys get the impression there are multiples of these? I mean, there must be, given the way the Twilight Order acts. But what do you think? Well, I mean, given the way that there's, you're, whenever you have a settlement that dies out and you create a new one, it's not in a unique universe. It's technically within the same one, so they would still be experiencing a Watcher, probably not the same one. No. Mm. Well, you, Josh. I agree. I, I think there's multiples of these. I mean, it sounds like. Like, I don't think there's just one Lantern Horde out there. There's other survivors and settlements out there. And I think it even mentions it. There's some of the hunt events and stuff that there's other people out there. Yes. Yeah. Well, we, we know absolutely there is other people out there. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, th- I think it's fair to say that the Watcher is more of a species rather than a single individual. Um, and especially when we look at the Twilight uh, cloak from the Lantern Festival art, the suggested making things out of Watchers stuff. And I, I think Twilight Order have probably built some bits and pieces out of Watchers as well. So, yeah, it's um, it's I think like law wise, the Watcher is an interesting creature. We don't have much to go on. It appears to be constructed out of robes, a scarf and lanterns and ropes. Um. The artwork that we do have of it is just of um, it in its cocoon and then with it removing a survivor's brain from their head, which fits in with the very much the theme as we look through the cards. We'll see how it likes to act. Uh, um, yeah, uh, but I, I like, again, I think the idea of the Watcher is pretty good. I think... It's, um, it's interesting that uh, this kind of ultimate betrayal is the very place that was safety to you. Turns out to be because there's something in there that's going to, gonna well, looking to kill you, looking to uh, sap your strength, take it from you and feed on it. Um, so it's great for an iconic monster, which the Watcher is, being the cover monster for the game, being our um, 
been on both the box and the rule book. Uh, I just, I feel it's not, it's not foreshadowed well enough. And I think that's where the law lands a little bit flat. We don't get much of a feel of hastening, like something coming until you hit lantern year 20 and suddenly it's like, Hey, it's watcher time. Yeah. Um, that's where we are with the, the law. It's, uh, there's sort of a few hints and bits around here, but out of all of the nemesis monsters that we have, um, in the game so far, I think the watch is the one with the least detail. Considering it's the centerpiece of one of the three campaigns, it's a bit of a surprise. It's definitely less fleshed out than the nemesis for both people of the stars and people of the sun. Yeah, and I think that might have been done on the order of mysteriousness, possibly. But at the same time, it does feel kind of shallow uh, compared to some of the others on there. Yeah, he's there isn't much. And I hope 1.5 updates a little bit more with the Watcher and uh, makes it a bit more interesting since... Uh, be mid game. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as I say, law wise, I think there's a lot you can speculate on with the watcher. Um, there's certainly a great deal of details with regards to the way it looks. It's a incredibly iconic looking monster considering how new it is. Um, that's pretty impressive in itself. Um, and I, I love the crest for the watcher. It's a, a beautiful piece with the, um, the scarf forming kind of an ankh shape. The lantern's all hanging beneath it, and then we've got its vines sticking out to either side. You can't see it so clearly on the um, box because, of course, it's black on black. Black is black. But on the um, on the rule book, it's right there, very nice and, and clear to see. I think maybe, speculating lore-wise, perhaps the faces on the scarves represent its victims. He has a scarf with many faces. He does, yes. Oh, yeah, um... Uh, if I sound kind of slightly uncertain with and speculative with the Watcher, it's because of all of the three Nemesis monsters at the end of the campaigns. It's the one I've kind of spent the less time thinking about. And actually, while I've fought it twice, uh, which is only slightly less than the other two, it's, um, I could say twice in full campaigns. I fought it standalone a few times to, to get to grips with how it acts and whatnot. But, um, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's sort of, the one I thought the least of. Anyway, um, what about what about you guys? What have you picked up? Anything extra law wise that you kind of or theory wise that you have in respect to the watchers? Apart from looking like floating jellyfishes and acting like you know lures traps. I mean, they clearly they look like they're plant like, which would make sense. It is a very organic looking monster. If you look at one of the AI cards, he you can kind of see his underbelly kind of area, and he looks like he's got little like vines for. A body or just like, kind of like spines. Yeah. Yeah, I see. It's the Vapor of Nothingness card, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, they're, um, they're, they're oddly colored as well. They're slightly blue, which is different to, to what's normally on these cards. It's just an, an unusual detail in itself. Uh, I guess maybe the Watcher itself hangs up near the hood at the top and the rest, the cloak may well be living. It probably is. Yeah, this is another thing I think is worth sort of saying, which kind of struck me is this is a very different monster to most of the other monsters in the game. It's uh, it's far more ethereal than than the rest. Yeah, they definitely made a point of making this monster feel completely different than the other ones that you faced in the earlier game. I mean, aside from just the mechanics, just the uh, the artwork and the uh, that it's fleshed out as well. Mm, Yes. Well, uh, if we don't have anything more on the um. 
with regards to the law, I guess it's time to move on to looking at the basic actions and the traits of the Watcher and the, the AI deck in general. So, Josh, would you like to take us away with the basic action? Yeah, so um, his basic action, uh, his pick target is furthest survivor, no target absorb. Um, and then he's going to do move and attack. He's got four speed, two plus accuracy, five damage. And then after damage, knockback suffers knockback ten. So he likes to knock people around on the board, and he likes to go after the furthest survivor on the board. How does he get to the furthest survivor? So the uh, survivor only has one level. Uh, he has got 12 basic cards, no advanced, no legendaries. Uh, he has unlimited movement, and his toughness is equal to the current Lantanier on the settlement's record sheet. So the longer you wait to fight him, the harder he's going to be to wound. Um, he uses the life counter trait. So his life starts at the current lantern year minus 10. So if you fight him in year 20, he would have 10 life. Year 25, we had 15 life. And year 20, he would have 20 toughness. Year 25, he had 25 toughness. What's he like to fight with 10 life? That's like a two, three round fight. It's (laughs) quick. It's, It's about as much life as a level one monster has. Would you say it's almost anticlimactic? Very much. That would be one way to say it, yeah. Yeah. Here's a, a little aside before we move on. He's got a 12-card AI deck. i got no problem with that. You, this, you only ever fight, I say he, it. You only ever fight one Watcher. What I feel that Poot's missed a trick here. Why is this Watcher not listed with a different level number? And why are these basic actions listed as basic actions? Why couldn't the Watcher be like a level 4? And have 12 legendary actions. Even if the, the AI cards weren't any different, if they just said legendary and said, exactly. and you're right, and said level four or legendary monster or something like that, it would just feel a lot better. It would. It would. It's, I mean, maybe Poots has given himself some design space for hunting multiple different what level watchers in the future, or that was the intention originally, perhaps with the Lantern Festival, there might something like that might have happened. But you know, if it's not the case, then make this guy feel special. It's meaningless, but can you imagine that uh, somebody getting to the watch the first time and going, "Okay, uh, his deck's twelve cut, uh, his deck's twelve legendary cards." What the? F- oh God, this is terrifying. Um, so uh, we'll talk about the traits, I think, and then we'll have a discussion about the life counter mechanic because that one's um, one of the things, that, and it's an instinct as well. Yeah. You have to carry on, Josh. Sorry, we interrupted you. That's all right. So uh, let's go to his instincts first, which is absorb. Um, you move the Watcher to the center of the showdown board. All survivors gain minus one strength token. The Watcher heals one wound, which the heal's nice, and the minus strength makes it a little bit harder. Um, the interesting thing, and I want to say this, like, we're going to talk about the life counter, but, like, technically, how early could you fight the Watcher with records? Ah, uh, theoretically. Uh, give me a moment. I need to pull up my tech tree so I know how quickly you hypothetically can get records out. Okay, so while we're doing that, we're going to talk about his other traits. All right, so his first trait is audience. So terrified survivors spectate the battlefield in silence. Um, and then they gives you an ability, uh, a bolden, which means uh, you can summon a new retinue. We'll talk about retinues in just a second. And we have the Vapor of Nothingness. This is whenever... No, no. Walk- wait. What? Sorry, Josh. Uh, Embolden is where if there are less than four survivors on the board, you get to bring a new one on. It's oh, one sorry. of the coolest mechanics in the fight where, yes. you know, it represents how desperate the fight's supposed to be. But carry on. 
Yeah, sorry, thank you. I, I thought that was something else. Uh, vapor of nothingness, which is whenever the watcher collides with a survivor, the blood flows to the brain, stuttering for a moment. They suffer one brain damage and one damage to the head that ignores armor points. So you don't want to collide with the uh, the watcher too much. You know, one just gives you the checkbox to the head and you're getting knocked down. And then any others, you're going to get a severe head injury. And I like this. Um, just by the time you get to the watcher, you're normally used to how to make it so you don't collide with it. Monsters, really. So this isn't really too much of a big deal once you get to it. Next up is the Lantern, lantern Vortex. Um, at the start of each monster's turn, all survivors in the Void Nexus suffer Bash, and then he performs a basic action. So he's going to do this and then do a basic attack against the further survivor. So Bash is knocked down. It's within anyone within two spaces of him. So he's going to basically knock down everyone around him, and then he's going to go run to the further survivor and hit him. And so everyone that's next to him is going to get knocked down, and then he's going to run across the board, so it's going to be harder for them to get to him. And then we have the Retinue, which is... Uh, you can summon a retinue, march, double march, and coordinate attack. It just gives you the abilities. Uh, and we'll talk about those in a second. And then coordinate attack. When a survivor attacks, ugh, when a survivor attacks, add plus six strength to the wound attempt for the each ret- retinue adjacent to them. So Matt, you want to talk a little bit more about retinues because there's basically half the rule book, half the page for the watcher fight is how retinues work. Sure thing. So retinue is a new mechanic that's introduced with the watcher and it's the only monster that uses it. And basically a retinue is having not just your four survivors in the fight, it's having your entire settlement in the fight uh, to an extent. Uh, so I'm just reading out of the book here, retinue rules. A retinue represents the settlements uniting to fight together. Each retinue occupies nine spaces as shown, uh, and it shows a three by three grid and is made of nine unused survivor miniatures. A retinue cannot attack monsters directly, instead lends its strength to the other survivors. A retinue is treated as a single large survivor and moves as a cohesive unit on the showdown board, maintaining its configuration. Retinues have the following rules. Targeting and effects. A retinue does not count as a threat and cannot be directly uh, picked or selected as a target. Only monster collisions and actions that apply to all survivors can affect a retinue. A retinue has no attributes and cannot be knocked down, suffer knockback, or gain status cards. For the purpose of survivor collision, treat retinues as impassable terrain. Killing a retinue. When a retinue suffers damage, including brain damage, or collision with a monster, roll a d10. On a 4+, the retinue is destroyed. So they are very fragile. Uh, a retinue also is destroyed when a monster ends its movement on a space it occupies or when the survivor controlling the retinue dies. When a retinue is destroyed, remove it from the showdown board. The settlement suffers minus four population. This loss cannot kill the other survivors currently in the showdown. And finally, using a retinue, a survivor with the retinue survivor status card can perform the following actions. Summon a retinue. Once per act, a survivor without a retinue may place a retinue in an unoccupied space along any board edge and move it up to five spaces. And I guess by unoccupied space, they mean a three-by-three grid of unoccupied spaces. Uh, Then they have March, which is at the start of their act, a survivor with a retinue gains an additional movement that can only be spent to move their retinue up to five spaces. Double March. Once per round, any time a survivor can dash, they may spend one survival to dash their retinue up to five spaces, in addition to their own dash survival action. 
And finally, coordinated attack, and this is the most important one. When a survivor attacks, add plus six strength to the wound attempt total for each retinue adjacent to them. So that's a lot of words and rules right there, but it's essentially you spawn four population from your settlement onto the board to form a an amorphous blob, essentially. And they follow your survivors around. You control them. And whenever they're adjacent to your survivor, they gain plus six strength when attempting to wound. It's a very interesting mechanic, but like it has the weird side effect. Like, so it says to use nine survivors, but it's only four. Yeah, I thought that was a little odd that it says suffer minus four population when it dies, but it specifically says use nine uh, unused survivor miniatures. So maybe the idea is the watcher hits them, it kills five of them, and four of them kind of run back and form a, or it kills four of them. I and think five what it back. is. What it what what it is is it's a case of Poots didn't want to provide bases for these because really they should have been like bases with four models on them a piece would was the way it would work. So you need to fill space with nine. So it's kind of like balance versus function on the board. Um, really, these retinues could have been like four by four. You know, they, they, there's no reason for them to be this large except to make them an easier target for the watcher to hit. It could also have been a token or something too, just to show them. Exactly. Um, another note is it doesn't say you can't summon them if you have no population. Classic Kingdom Death. Very true. So you can summon an unlimited number of retinues. It's just that you are going to reduce your population to sub zero, in which case you cannot bring more survivors into the showdown, which is another mechanic we're going to get into later with the Watcher. Yeah. This is another silver bullet to help you deal with the Watcher. So now we've got a Nemesis monster with two silver bullets. Right, and this is one we've actually taken advantage of just because it's there. You don't really have to do anything extra for it. Uh, I don't believe we've ever actually used the Twilight Sword when we've been fighting the Watcher, so this is the one silver bullet we've used. There's actually a third silver bullet for the Watcher, and we'll discuss that later. It's uh, quite a great one as well. (laughs) It's my favorite. All right. Uh, did you figure out what year you could actually fight the Watcher the earliest? I did. Okay. So this is incredibly unlikely. Okay. So disclaimer, the odds on this are astronomically small. I couldn't be bothered to work out exactly what one in however hundred million it was, but it's very slim. Uh, potentially you can build records by Lantern year three by innovating each year. And then you can activate records twice a year if you want to. So hypothetically, you build it in Lantern Year 3, you activate it twice each year, you have to roll a 1 on the chart, that's why it's unbelievably unlikely, you have to do it twice in the year, that's a 1% chance of rolling a 1 and a 1, so uh, you end up, if you do that every single year and you succeed at it, you face the Watcher in Lantern Year 10, which means the Watcher has 10 toughness and 0 life and dies immediately, so you wake up the Watcher too early... (laughs) And it, it's a shriveled up, tiny little dead thing. And you go, oh, and then the monsters all descend upon the set when you have to fight level threes. And you go, ah, oh, <laughs> that's, that's so awesome. It's like you awakened him from his eternal slumber, but he's, he fell out of bed and cracked his head open and died. Yeah, woke him up by writing net letters to him. You awake yet? But I guess that's, uh, that's the whole knowledge thing. The Watcher is awoken by knowledge. That's what records represents you writing memories down and things like that and the watcher is get, becomes closer to awaken just unfortunately the watcher mechanics mean if you wake it early it's uh, a wussy little bitch so yeah yeah hypothetically one day somebody might well be like we killed the watcher in lantern year 10 by doing nothing 
And it's a max of two rolls you can do on records? Yeah, it costs two in devs to activate. Okay, so so you could technically gain that somehow if you... Well, like if you had graves and you purposefully sacrificed people to die when they were out, so you gained extra endeavors, no? Well, you need to keep up your population somehow. So so it might be possible to do it slightly earlier on the super, super rare chance, but it's it's most likely your 10 is almost impossible. That and any time early you kill it, it still just dies immediately. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, you know, I, it is a fun idea in an image, and the watch is full of those fun little um, things that kind of undermine how menacing it's supposed to be. Hey, a tiny widow little watcher. Oh, no, I killed it. All right. Um, do you want to talk about stolen dreams now or wait till that comes up? Uh, let's talk about when it comes up. Okay. So let's go into the AI cards. So first up, we have Liquify. Pick target, last threat to wound, otherwise closest threat in field of view, no target absorb. Um, it's a three speed, two plus accuracy, five damage, and then the after damage is target gains minus one movement token. Afterwards, there's a flow here. Target suffers a bash and knockback 10. Place any survivor. The target collides with knockdown and as close as possible to the target. So he kind of knocks everyone into a big pile together. So your guys' thoughts on uh, this? Uh, just came into the camera for me. Well, this is the only one of its AI card attacks that actually hits the last threat to wound. So it's a little bit different to most of the rest in that, in the way that it targets. Uh, I mean, this is about par for how hard the watch is supposed to hit. It's slightly less speed than its basic action. Um, it's an interesting attack, kind of thematically, although... I'm not sure it does the name liquefy I'm, I I don't get liquefy from this. Not sure what it's referring to there. Maybe he goes all jellyfish and like covers them in like goo and that's why they have minus one movement. Well, you know he is a jellyfish. You do know that. No? <laughs> all right. So Am next. I alone in this? I mean, he he has a jellyfish. He's a jellyfish. You no, know, he he's entirely a jellyfish. He, he's a lantern. He's got a lantern fish. A lantern jellyfish. Yeah, I realized earlier I was saying I'm not really sure what he's based on, but he's a jellyfish. I, I've just been looking at the AI card deck. He's a jellyfish. He's a jellyfish that sits there, protects... You know those big jellyfish that the fish swim around in, in between the tendrils, and they're nice and safe? This is what he does. He protects the survivors, they swim around, except unlike the jellyfish, he then goes, and now it's dinner time and eats them. You knew it was going to happen at some point during this. I was going to declare that he was something or other. Well, at least he's not Michael Jackson, too. That's true. Or Muhammad Ali. Exactly. All right, next up is Haro, which is closest threat, then absorb, uh, move and attack, four speed, two plus accuracy, five damage, and then after damage, reduce the target survivor to zero. This one, uh, the speed and the damage is on par with its, its base attack, um, but the reduce the target survival to zero is really threatening. Um, this is quite a scary attack and four speed as we found out on thursday is around that magic number where it's difficult to overcome it if you're unfortunate because you can only block a maximum of two hits and you can only dodge one so that's where you need the evasion to be able to dodge more indeed this this one's kind of just a pain in the ass because of the reducing the survival to zero otherwise it's pretty on pace for everything else he does now yeah, there's not a huge amount of variation in the actual attack profiles on the Watcher. All right. Next up is Mortif- Mortify. 
uh, which is closest threat, then absorb. It's a four speed, two plus accuracy, four damage. The after damage is target suffers bleed one, and then reduce the target's insanity to zero. So the, I, the bleed one's not much. The insanity could be. Yeah, the insanity bad. has impact with vapor of nothingness. So yeah, it's um, it, it's it, again, it's kind of it's interesting that um, I mean the bleed, yeah, as you're right, the insanity not, is more threatening. I'm just sort of thinking whether the loss in damage is relevant. I think the dem- difference between four and five damage is virtually nothing, really, at this stage. Um, hmm. Yeah, I think this is one of the nastier attacks. I think about it because of the insanity reduction. That has a lot of potential to um, put you in a very bad place quickly. Matt, any thoughts from you? Uh, just what you guys were echoing about the reducing the insanity to zero and having that... Uh, oh, I forget the name of the card. The... Vapor of Nothingness. Thank you. Vapor of Nothingness, how it, uh, it plays Jenny off of that. I will steal your dreams. All right, so next up we have Petrify, which is closest threat in field of view, which is... Oh, the other one's, I guess, also a target blind spot because it says closest threat. This is actually one that says in field of view. Um, this is a six speed, two plus accuracy, three damage, and then after damage, target gains a stolen dream survivor status card. Then full move the watcher towards the closest threat. Um, stolen Dreams is? Alright, Stolen Dreams. You cannot gain Stolen Dreams if you have 9 plus Courage and Understanding. So you need to max out both Courage and Understanding to ignore this. When you gain this, you are knocked down. You remain knocked down as long as you have this card. At the end of your act, if there are two or more of any combination of Survivors or Retinues adjacent to you, archive this card and stand. Hmm. So what are your guys' thoughts on this? Okay, so... With that level of speed, so obviously the main aim of this attack is not to deal damage, but to drop Stolen Dreams. Now, Stolen Dreams would be a lot more threatening if the fights didn't have the retinues and didn't have the emboldened action to bring back things back in, because it would become more desperate. If you had two survivors pinned down by Stolen Dreams, unlikely circumstance because of the nature of the AI deck, but it could be very frightening on the wheel. That, uh, the wheel of the deck where it gets reshuffled. I, again, this is like, it's a great theme. And I think Stolen Dreams is a super interesting card, especially with the way that you're immune. If you have, you're, you're incredibly brave and you know it, you're very knowledgeable. So it doesn't work against the mightiest of all survivors. But, um, it's just, I think we could have done, it, it doesn't quite work within the context of the fight to be as threatened as it should be. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I like the concept of it. Um, but I, I don't think there's much that gives stolen dreams and it just, it's a little easy to, to get rid of it if it, the retinues didn't count or maybe it had to be at least one survivor and a retinue, not like if two retinues were mm-hmm. actually, you can do it. Um, yeah. It would make it more interesting and it would make the, this happening more often would, would make the fight a lot more dynamic and interesting and make it, Make it so once you've done this once, you're like, all right, I really need to max out some understanding and courage on some survivors to fight the Watcher and actually do a decent job against them. Yeah, there's only one other card that gives out Stolen Dreams, from what I can tell. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's it's hard to get put in that position. Um, even if you did, uh, it would just sort of result in the death of a couple of survivors and then the replacements or the retinues would fix the problem. So, um Again, this is one of those things which crops up in the Watcher 
a fair bit in my opinion, which is a cool idea. It just lacks a little bit in the execution to make the punch hard enough. Still, great name. Pet- Petrify, spot on what it does with Stolen Dreams. And it's full of flavor in respect of what the Watcher does. And I just took a look. There is two AA cards and it looks like two hit location cards that can give this out. So not a lot of places that this happens. Indeed. Matt, any thoughts from you? I don't think we ever had this come into play when we were playing, have we? No. I mean, very limited, you know, capabilities for it to come into play, but it's pretty interesting. All right. So next card I got is Purify, which is pick target, closest survivor, no target absorb. It's a four speed, two plus accuracy, five damage. The after damage is remove all positive attribute modifier tokens from the target. If any plus one strength tokens were removed this way, the watcher gains plus one damage token. So I'm just thinking, I can't this doctor, but that's not core game. But core game, you there's not much that gives you a lot of plus modifiers besides like what Red Fist, Red Fist Sonic. and Quixotic. I believe that's it. So it's not really anything that's going to come up commonly, but uh, still an interesting concept for a mechanic there for the Watcher. It's kind of cool. Then is there anything else that gives out tokens? There's no hunt phase. Yeah, um, I just uh, I will have a little dither around in the background and see if I can come up with anything. There might be one or two barber surgeon items. I'm thinking maybe, but uh, I'll have to check. I don't think it's that common though. Yeah, so I don't think it's common. There might be a couple hit locations where you crit or something to get something, but it's it seems a little out of place because it just it doesn't happen often. All right, so next up we have throttle. The target is doomed. Um, it's a four speed, two plus accuracy. It's also close to start absorber. I forgot to skip that. Uh, five damage, and then after damage, all other survivors suffer knockback ten away from the watcher. So it's just a big knockback for all survivors. So this is a little nasty because everyone gets knockback away from him, not just whoever he's hit in. Yeah, yeah. Um, before we talk about it, in reference to purify, uh, the bone earrings from these. Don't circle if you're insane, give you two strength tokens. Um, but most people do not use them beyond the early game anyway, except in People of the Bone, where it would be very relevant. All right. So thoughts on Throttled? Anything more than just everyone just gets knocked the hell away? Very much a pain in the ass. It's very cool, this one. Um, the Doomed is great because, you know, that's like taking away a lot that you could do. Um, and... Uh, this sort of isolates one survivor as well. I kind of wish it picked furthest threat instead of closest though. Maybe it would have been more like kind of thematic to have and scary to have the watcher swoop across, land next to the person furthest away, possibly colliding with anyone who's in the way and then push everyone back and leave usually your bow guy or someone like that ranged fighter sat who, who'd be sat further back isolated alone without any support. Yeah, that would be interesting. All right, next up we have Void Warp, a survivor with the Hour Ring. Uh, otherwise, it's survivor closest to a board edge, no target absorb. Move the Watcher to the center of the board, place target in front of the monster, target is doomed. Attack target. It's 2 speed, 2 plus accuracy, 10 damage. After damage, if the target has the Hour Ring, hour ring they suffer minus 7 to severe injury rolls from this attack. Target gains the Stolen Dreams Survivor status card. Oh, just a minus seven? That's not that bad. 
It's about average for what your survivors take, isn't it, Matt? <laughs> Pretty accurate there. You might as well have a special um, injury chart for the head, which basically reads one to nine decapitation or head explosion. Yeah, it sounds it sounds mostly accurate. Uh, so can you remind us what the hours ring is again? So the hour uh, ring is from the Phoenix, and it lets retired retired survivors go out and hunt. It also means they cannot get tokens for any reason. They don't gain hunt XP or weapon proficiency. Um, thematically, it, the hours ring effectively freezes survivor in time in certain aspects, which uh, is kind of what we're seeing here is, is the watcher targeting in this way is somebody who is sort of frozen in time, can't gain any experience, can't gain any knowledge. That's very much an anathema to what the watcher is after. So we don't like it. So if you were in an hour's ring, expect severe pain. It's pretty bad for someone who doesn't have one as well. Yeah, and the second target's kind of weird. Survivor closest to a board edge. It's a little different than all the other targeting. That's quite often either going to be a ranged fighter or somebody who's just arriving via the emboldened action. I'm not sure what the thematic reason is for it, but that is kind of like interesting because it's usually a survivor you're not expecting to be targeted. All right, so next up we have Vomit Lanterns. This sounds, the picture of this sounds really cool. Uh, this is a random survivor in field of view. No target absorb. It's three speed, two plus accuracy, five damage. After damage, target suffers knockback 10. Then you move the watcher into the space the target was occupying. It's pretty straightforward, this one really. Quite on theme with a lot of what the watcher does, which is knocking the people back and moving into their spaces. But this is probably like the most tame card in the, that he has. Yeah, apart from the random survivor in field of view, that's kind of, um, that can result in collisions. Alright, so those are all the main attack cards he has. We're gonna go into the intimidate cards he has. So this is, probably gonna say this wrong, by, by photon? Is saying that wrong, then? By photon. By photon feast. Turn the watcher to face the furthest board edge. Pick target, all survivors facing, no target absorb. Intimidate all targets. The light drains from the survivors. All survivors in the monsters facing suffer three brand damage and minus one accuracy token and are knocked down. Then you full, full move forward. So I just, you just go to the board edge because he has unlimited yep. movement. <laughs> Indeed. Pretty bad if you just moved to a board edge, say to attack someone via, I don't know, uh, void warp. Yep. But three brand damage doesn't seem like. For the final boss, when you normally it's get more in, about that minus one accuracy token. Yeah, yeah. Early on, this could be a real problem if you do take a minus one accuracy token, especially if you've been very frivolous with your survivors and they're not particularly well um, aged up or geared at this stage, which some people do get a, try and get away with against the Watcher. All right. So the next up is the second intimidation card, which is Stupefy, random survivor with nine plus understanding. Random survivor with three plus understanding, no target absorb. Uh, so you intimidate target, turn to face the target. They suffer brain damage equal to their understanding and are knocked down. And people wonder why we constantly like except darkness is amazing. So uh, this is pretty straightforward, really. You know, it's just punishment for whoever's the most understanding, uh, and it's an attack on knowledge again. Um, brain damage is about the worst part of it, but as I said, vast majority of players pick except darkness. Uh, over whatever the other one is. I don't even remember these days. Collective Toil? Yeah, Collective Toil, which is, uh, yeah. what, you get extra endeavors for every 10 population you have? Yeah, it's super exciting. It's great. Yeah. All 
All right. So the last two cards we have are, or AI cards we have is his two moods. Um, and they're very similar. So I'm going to talk about them both at the same time. So they're exhale and inhale. They're both moods. And when they both come into play, you draw an AI card. Um, inhale is at the end of each monster's turn, all survivors suffer knockback five directly towards the watcher. Then all, any survivors adjacent to the watcher lose one survival. Um, where exhale is at the end of each survivor's turn, turn all survivors, at the end of each monster's turn, all survivors suffer knockback five directly away from the watcher. So Tim breathing in and out. Um, and then after this, they both have discard this mood if excel, uh, if the other one's drawn. So if he was inhaling and then XL comes out, he'll switch them up. What do you guys think of these? Jellyfish. It's, it's really does sell the, um, the theme of the watcher for me, but uh, jelly, it nails it as a jellyfish in my opinion. Um, I love the artwork, but it is kind of cool. Um, I think the knockback towards is worse than the knockback away. Although the knockback away can be frustrating. The, the, um, the towards is generally going to bounce people into the watcher and force collisions. I very much like the whole, like, constant idea of it's constantly inhaling. Um, I almost wish, though, that this was a double-sided mood card as a trait instead, and you kind of flipped it. So it would inhale and exhale and, you know, maybe semi-randomly. But it's, um, yeah, again, it's not terrible in the way it's designed. It's just these, you don't encounter these too often. Yeah, I think this, if this was a trait card and, like, after the end of each turn, he flips the card over, it would be really cool. Yeah, I think that would be a really great mechanic for the game just because you're constantly being pushed away or pulled in by five spaces every round. It'll really screw up with what you're trying to do. It would make the monster feel very powerful. Right, like you have this pulsating wave of power that's pushing you back and forth. Uh, don't we all want a nice, powerful monster at the end of the game, right? No, I like an easy knockover. If I want a scary monster, I'm going to go fight Tom. All right, so that's all the AI cards. Anything else to, to talk about while we uh, are in this part, or should we go to the hit location cards? Well, not really, except to say you can see the themes involved around with the Watcher here, which is manipulation of position and movement, um, slightly unusual targeting, um, themes of knowledge, um, attacking knowledge in particular, um, and uh, and the general kind of, well, plant-like slash jellyfish-like appearance of it. I think by photon feast is a, a direct jellyfish um, reference as well. Biophoton, sorry. Yeah, it's something to pay in mind as we move on towards the hit locations. All right, Ben, do you want to go through those or shall I? Uh, if you could, that would be great. I dropped my deck on the floor and I haven't found all of the cards. I've got to dig them out from under the PC. All right, so um, the first one we're going to do is Blackern, Blackened Lantern. This is a super dense impervious location. Um, the lantern reflects your hopeless visage. Attacker suffers three brain damage. If you do critically wound it, you inverted gravity. The watcher tumbles to the ground, collapsing in a heap. The watcher is knocked down. You may perform embolden up to three times. And Josh, what is embolden again? Embolden is means you can bring another survivor out if you have less than four out from your settlement. So that means if you only have one survivor out, you critically wound this or critically hit it. You can't wound. You get to bring out three new people to fight with you. That is particularly handy, especially if you're in a dire situation, which hasn't come up for us hiding the Watcher yet, but you know. There's also an interesting suggestion that the Watcher um, manages to float via these lanterns. That is interesting. All right. 
so next card up, we have Inner Robes. Uh, this is a, just a wound reaction on it. Move the Watcher onto the space the attacker is currently occupying, and then you may perform Embolden. So another chance to bring someone out, though you are going to get that Vapor of Nothingness as uh, he walks into you. Yep, yep. It's, um, it's not one of the best locations to hit, um, although the Embolden gain can be very helpful for players who are struggling a bit. Alright, the next two cards are identical, so, or pretty much identical. Uh, the hydrostatic fluids and the hydrostat- uh, hydrostatic skeleton. Um, they're both super dense, is, they both have a wound reaction, is turn the watch to face the attacker. Attacker gains one bleeding token, you may perform embolden. If you critically wound, um, they have different flavor text, but the attacker gains plus three survival, you turn the watcher to face the furthest board edge and full move forward. So he kind of runs away from you. Um, the fluid say a distant growling whale, and the skeleton says a glowing goo spills to the ground. So he is gooey. Yep. And, yep. and um, do you know what uh, hydrostatic more or less is here? Matt, I'm sure you're more familiar with hydrostatic. Oh, the cards just came up for me now. I didn't have a chance to look at it. I mean, as a concept. Yeah, you, uh, you're an engineer, aren't you? So hydrostatic, you should be able to visualize what that means. You're assuming that I remember my fluid mechanics class, Fen. <laughs> well, you could just break the word apart into two Hydro separate would elements. Be water. Static would yep. be, it doesn't move, so it would be like a gel. That would be my yeah. idea. Oh, oh, what kind of gel-like creatures do we know? Like a fish that's made of a gel-y substance? Yeah, so I a just jello. want peanut butter and jelly now. Peanut butter and jellyfish sandwich. So are we on board with my jellyfish now? Yeah, I'm on yes, board yes. Yeah, you see, I, I need more excitement about this. Because when we get to the crown, it's time to cheer. But he, but he has no sting. Um, well, we'll have a look. We'll see if we can find it. All right. So next up, uh, again, two cars are identical, just a little bit of different flavor text. Tentacle crown and tentacle chains. Um, attacker loses two survivals. Survival. If they cannot, they gain the stolen dream survivor status card. Um, a wound, turn the watcher to face the attacker, then move the monster three spaces backwards. Cancel all hits now out of range. Um, the flavor text on the chains is the bitter taste of ooze fills the attacker's mouth, setting their teeth on edge. And the crown is luminescent ooze splashes all over the ground. It's the bitter taste of ozone, but um, I can see, yeah, because you, you've got ooze on one. Yeah, ozone. Well, again, tentacles, tentacle crown, tentacle chains. You know, we know what's got tentacles. We know what's going on here now. He's a sunstalker in disguise. Now that would be a, a what a twist. All right, next up we have the outer robes. Um, reflux, the attacker is knocked down unless they have nine plus courage. Um, attacker suffers a random brain trauma unless they have three plus courage. The critical is a sudden release of air pressure. Remove all attribute modifier tokens from the attacker. You may perform embolden. I like this. I've asked about this before. I want more critical hit locations that punish. Because if you run through the entire game, and as, as you do right now, where crits are great, crits are great, it would have been fantastic to come up against the last monster and suddenly be like, oh dear, crits are not the best right now. Um, so this is, uh, this is pretty interesting. Although, uh, it does also remove like negative attribute modifier tokens if you've received them, but you don't get that many from the watcher. It's a cool crit location. Um, and an interesting reflex. 
based around courage. I think the crit's really the best part of the outer robes. All right, I'm just trying to look through the cards real quickly to see if there's any more kind of duplicate ones so we don't go through the same thing twice. Uh, the Void Light and Gastrodermis appear to be very similar, but yep. not quite I identical. just grabbed those. Uh, we'll talk about the two of these together. Again, they have uh, some different flavor text and a little bit different effect at the bottom. Um, both of them have attacks. Attacker suffers three brain damage and gains one bleed token. And they're both reflexes, by the way. Uh, move the Watcher to the center of the showdown board. And then the Gastromonius. Did I say that right? Gastrodermis. So that's like um, gastro as in, you know, um, the gastrointestinal and dermis as in skin. So this is like its stomach, the skin of its stomach. Uh, If the attacker has six plus courage, they may grab onto the monster as it passes. If they do, gain another bleeding token and place the attacker in an unoccupied space adjacent to the monster. So you kind of grab onto him. Uh, The flavor text on this is the watcher suddenly jets through the attacker, its passage crackling through the survivor's nerves. And then for the voided light, it is if the attacker has six plus understanding, they see the vision of their future in the light and gain one d five plus one survival. And the uh, the flavor text here is the watcher cloak luminance luminescence flooding the attacker's head with searing se- pain as the watcher floats away. So, what do you think of these guys? Oh, the void light's kind of cool. Um, they just they don't they're interesting. I know that's a very vague comment. They are definitely unique, absolutely, and uh, it, they're, they're wonderfully um, evocative as well. Right, the imagery there is really nice, and it does put forward, again, you're harping on the jellyfish, but it does work with this too, the way that it describes the uh, the attacks and the way they work. All right, so the next two cards are going to be the Void Hood and the Void Folds. Um, hey, hey, Matt, sorry, sorry for interview, Matt, guess yes. what? Yes, what, what, what? This is a nemesis monster, yeah? So if yes. you start sailing, guess what you can do? You can literally harp on it to get rid of it. Uh, Carry on, Josh. That was worth it. Uh, All right. So the Void Hood and the Void Folds. Uh, They're both first strikes. Uh, They have different criticals, but the failures are the same on them. The attacker gains minus one strength token. Turn the watcher to face the furthest board edge and full move forward. Um, On the Void Folds, the critical is a sweet musk spills from the wounds. The scent is... Extrilli- I can't even say the word. Extrilli- I can't. I'm not gonna try anymore. Uh, the attacker gains plus three courage and plus three understanding. You may perform embolden. That is quite a crit. The scent is exhilarating. Thank you. I just totally lost that. Um, and for the hood, it is when you crit echoing sh- sh- shrieks, intoxicate you. Attacker gains plus two strength token. You may perform embolden. Yeah. Um, okay, so reduction in minus one strength tokens. Um, interesting. That's uh, that's not something we're seeing that much of the Watcher doing, is it? Well, he has taken away uh, minus strength tokens in an earlier one, and then also he had another one, which is just remove all positive attribute tokens as well, no? True, true, yes. It's a, it seems to be a secondary theme. Does that seem right? Sapping strength? makes sense with the way that it also drains memories, so... It does. Mm. Are you okay there, Josh? You're going to manage, or do you need me to take over on finishing these locations? Uh, I think I could do them. Just uh, He increased his vocabulary on these cards, so they're, they're getting me a little bit. Uh, they are very eloquent, yes. 
So I'm going to do, uh, I got two more first strike cards in the deck that I'm going to do. So next, next up is the void membrane. The attacker loses two survival. If they cannot, they die instantly. And then the reflex is hypnotic under undulations. Undulations, undulations. rolls over the watcher's as in, surface, as in as in pulsing waves. Uh, turn the watcher to face the attacker, then move the monster three spaces backwards. Cancel all hits, not out of range. So he likes to move away from you a lot. I mean, he's moving around the board a lot in general, just because he has a handful of attacks that target furthest survivor, and then he has inf- infinite movement. So he's moving around all over the place. And I didn't even notice. The other card is actually almost identical. It's Void Epidermis, and it's the same. You lose to survival or die. And then the reflux is just outraged. Hissing fills the air. And it's moved three spaces back. So they're both the same. Yep. I, I, so I really like this location, these locations. I think they're super interesting. I don't know how I feel about the lose to survival or just die mechanic. This is the final fight. If there's going to be bullshit in the game, this is where it should be located. Very true. You got a point there. Consider how easy he is. The, these are, these are, and you should have a ton of survival in this fight. You shouldn't be running low unless, like, you got screwed by that one card. So that it forces you to think about your survival use and hold on to it. And also, it combines with the attack card that removes all survival. Yeah. So I, I like I like the mechanic, even though it's like. Typical rest of the game, eh, I wouldn't like this, but for final boss, where it's all or nothing, it's, I, I think it's okay. It's great. Yeah, yeah. It, it should be. Your final battle, it's all bets are off, and if you do have stuff like this, it just kills someone outright, especially because we have a mechanic of people being replaced in from the settlement within Bolden. It's, it's, it's fine. It's a very acceptable, interesting thing, and it adds into the themes of draining. You know, for the watcher draining people. You know, that's very true. I didn't even take into account the concept of you can embolden more survivors coming in. So I think that takes away some of the cheapness for me. All right. So the next three are all identical. Um, the void shroud, the void corpse and the void nerve ring. Corpus, I think is corpus. Yeah. So all survivors in the void nexus suffer three brain damage, which is two spaces around him. Um, and they all have the same critical, just different flavor text. Um, the attacker gains plus one survival, and you may perform embolden. And then nerve ring. I really like the flavor text on these. Yeah, uh, the nerve ring says a glowing spasm. And then you get on the void shroud a flowing tattered shroud. And then the one I really like, the void corpus, strange sparks fly where the watcher wearily scrapes the ground. It's like, come on, guys, I just want to eat you all. Oh, this isn't fair. You woke me up from my nap. I'm hungry. I just want to eat your brains. So the final boss is basically a zombie? A zombie jellyfish? More floaty than that, but yes. Kind of like a memory vampire. I am finished now. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Alright, so next up we have the Void Nerve Mask, which is very similar to the last three cards, but... It's on a failure instead of a wound. Uh, all survivors in the Void Nexus suffer one damage to all hit locations, so within two spaces. Uh, then the critical wound is, if the su- settlement has the barbaric principle, all survivors gain plus three insanity. The su- settlement has the romantic principle, all survivors gain plus two survival. I like that little flair of principle added to that. What do you guys think? 
Yeah, I think that definitely adds a lot to the uh, the fight here, just because that's something you haven't seen before, and it really makes you feel that you know this is the end game boss. So why wouldn't he take stuff like that into account? Hmm. Yeah, uh, I I do. I like this. It's it's nicely designed. It's interesting, um, and it kind of is a good little sort of callback to how the two different principles are designed. Um, I think, actually, interestingly, which one of these are you guys more likely to have picked? So I believe Barbaric, just because we hate dealing with the uh, Bone Witch. <laughs> and you get Hands of Heat, which I go is romantic. Every time romantic. We want romantic in our campaign. They, they, they choose romantic. I do like romantic. It's just the Bone Witch is... Like, you choose Barbaric, you get this awesome thing called Hand of Heat, or you choose Bone Witch, and you get screwed. I always ride the Bone Witch. It's the best ride in the entire of the park. You like you like the uh, the buff of uh, plus four strength, minus four accuracy, right, or whatever it is. Oh, absolutely, it's fantastic. I also like the fact that generally I can manage to deafen my survivors to deal with it. Yeah. So, but yeah, that's just a point. So we have that. Uh, next up, uh, all the rest of the hit location cards are pretty much unique, so no more doubling up. Uh, so next we have the Void Nerve Net. Uh, it's a reflex. Move the Watcher onto the space the attacker is currently occupying. A critical wound is a pleasant tingling. Electrifies the air. All survivors gain plus three insanity, and you may perform embolden. Okay, so this is a reference to how the Watcher is a primitive form of the internet for the Kingdom Death World. Collects information, sucks it up, takes it off into other places. So I take it that silence of, means... He's, he's made out of tubes? He's made out of tubes filled with water. Sometimes they get clogged. Like a jellyfish? Yeah, like a jellyfish. I'm glad you guys are on board with this jellyfish thing. All right. So next up, we have the Void Tentacles. There you go. Fan, we got some tentacles here. Um, reflux, the attacker suffers bash and knockback 10. Um, then critical wound, the monster extrudes just a drop of platable fear stench. Palatable. Palpable, fear stench. It is afraid. Archive all stolen dream survivor status cards. All knockdown survivors, down survivor stand, you may perform in Bolton. It's really kind of uh, cool and interesting that uh, this is one of those things where it's, uh, you know, the, the, considering that this creature, the ultimate nemesis, could have some fear is, is, is um, it's a nice little reward for players, I think. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and I'm really looking at this. I, so we talked about stolen dreams, and I really li- like the mechanics of that. And I think if it was allowed to be done more, and it was either two survivors need to stand you up, or when you do embolden, you can actually either remove a status card or bring out a survivor. I think that would be a cool mechanic. Just overall, as we keep seeing this, like it's kind of there, but I think that would make this a lot more interesting fight. What do you guys think? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's not a bad idea, and it fits thematically and everything as well. I like it. Yeah, I do. I think the watch has very cool themes. It's just the application is a little le- lacking at the moment. All right, next up we have the Void Plexus. Uh, reflex is basic action, target and attacker. And then Critical Wound, a violent spasm. The light pattern makes your eyes cross. Attacker gains 1d10 insanity. You may perform in Bolden. Ooh, cool. So this is a critical hit that actually um, provides you with some protection against one of the Watcher's main ways of attacking, which is via brain trauma. Yeah, this is actually one of the few times to actually get insanity. 
All right. Next up, we have the Void Polyps. Attacker gains a minus uh, failure is attacker gains minus one strength token. Perform basic action targeting attacker on a critical a gelatinous spray. It is slick and slippery. Attacker gains plus one evasion token and minus one movement token. You may perform embolden. So there's some more of your uh, your jelly, Fen. I I can't seem to find this card. Which one was it again? Void polyps. Oh polyps. Okay. Yes. Yes. I got it. Yep. Yes. Ooh. Gelatinous spray. Slick and slippery. Just like monster grease. A little bit more um, slick because it, it gives you minus one movement. <laughs> well, you know, greased up deaf guys and everything. Very difficult to move around when the bottoms of your feet are greased. So next up is Void Gangl- Ganglia. Ganglia. Uh, it's a failure. Uh, small explosions of light rapidly flicker over the watcher's surface, setting off the violent seizures in the attacker's brain. The attacker has three disorders. They are knocked down and gain one bleeding token. Otherwise, they gain one random disorder. Uh, perform basic action targeting the attacker. It's kind of weird that it doesn't give you an extra disorder if you have three. Because normally, adding an extra disorder might screw up your build or something, depending on what's going on. Oh, yeah, it's true. Um, but, I mean, gaining a bleeding token for failing to hit is an unexpected bleeding token happening during your turn. And often those tend to be one of the most fatal forms of bleeding tokens. Matt, anything from you? I do like the uh, the three disorders triggering it. That's pretty cool. Um, but, yeah, not terrible. Fan, can you read Void Toxin? Because I'm just going to screw up that first sentence there. I kind of want to hear Josh say it now. Oh, that's just cruel. I can try. Gouts of vicarious Icor reflectively shoot from the folds of the Watcher. Gouts of viscous ichor reflective, reflexive, oh god, I screwed up, reflexively shoot from the folds of the Watcher. I see, are we all having a go? My turn. Gouts of vicious ichor reflexively shoot from the folds of the Watcher. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Uh, Ring-a-ding-ding. Attacker gains a random disorder, perform basic action targeting attacker, and this is a failure. And that is a little bit of a tongue twister. And then we have two cards left. And Ooh, what they, could they be? They both have the same text, don't they? No, they're slightly different. Which one should I do first? They are slightly different. I think you should do the one that holds to the Watcher's theme of knocking people back. All right, so Blackout. I really like the look of this card. This card's just kind of cool. It's a little bit different. I, I like how these two cards are just themed. Uh, if Blackout and Whiteout, which is the other card we haven't talked about yet, are drawn during the same attack. The attacker suffers the head explosion, severe head injury. This cannot also be av- known as the mat. Yeah, this cannot be avoided anyway. After place the watcher in the center of the showdown board. Otherwise, all survivors are doomed. Perform basic action targeting the attacker. All survivors in the watcher's facing suffer bash and knockback ten. I think like the double, the double thing hurts, but like if it doesn't happen. The basic attack and being doomed isn't a big deal. I think, like, thematically, anyway. Like, I feel like it should even be harsh if you just got one of these. I think this would be harsher if um, the Watcher was more resilient than it is. If Because how often do you hit these traps? Like, this is a 25-card hit location deck, and mo- most of the time when you go through on the Watcher and you fight it, you're not even going to see half of these. That's true. Uh, we'll talk about these both cards after I talk about both of them. So the next one is the whiteout card. So if blackout and whiteout are drawn at the same time, your head explodes just like the other one. 
Um, otherwise, all survivors are doomed. Move the watch to the center of the showdown board. Turn to face the attacker. Intimidate the attacker. They suffer three brain damage and are knocked down and gain the stolen dream survivor status card. So that's the big secret thing about the watcher is he has two trap cards. And if you draw them both, you're dead. Instant death. And all the other survivors lose one survival from head explosion, I believe, right? Yes. So which one is your favorite? This question seems like a trap. Oh, they're technically both traps. Ha 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 ha. Oh dear. Oh dear. Um, this is fantastic. I mean, technically this makes the Watcher twice as likely to trap people as normal. Uh, this is the ultimate punish for people who play high speed. Cause, uh, you can get blindsided by these. Um, I has some interesting stuff going on with trappers though, as in the spear blue charm build. How does that work? Well, if you draw both trap cards with that. Uh, give let me let me take a one moment to just go back and refresh my memory on the exact wording of my favorite item. When you draw a trap, roll one d10 on a six plus, discard the trap and sh- reshuffle the deck. So you get to reshuffle them both back in, and you get two chances to do it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's pretty cool. And of course, um, spear. Spear specialization does the same thing. So I love them spears. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's really cool that this, this is the thing that I wish the watcher was more potent and powerful for, uh, because it's so cool that Poots designed a double trap monster within the core game, played with the design space like this. Yeah, I really love that this was added to his thing, just to separate it a little bit more, but it makes him feel extra menacing. It's just that you never really get a chance to deal with that. Uh, maybe if he had more life or just something that extended the fight more, because this is a really quick fight when you get going. Yeah, I guess with having gone through the hit location um, deck entirely, uh, we should talk about the Watcher in general before we discuss kind of what happens after you beat it and a look at the campaign as a whole. So let's, uh, how you guys fought the Watcher quite recently. So, um, that was, how was that fight? Extraordinarily short. You used the retinues, didn't you, to deal with it? Yeah, we used, I believe it was just two characters doing all the attacking. Josh was tanking it up front with one of his characters. Uh, I had the Vespertine bow, uh, and a retinue or two standing next. Yeah, I know you don't like that. The I love the bow. bow. It's too good. Carry on. It is. It really is too good. Uh, the Vespertine bow with, I think, a retinue or two standing next to me, and then uh, <laughs> the character that Twitch was playing as uh, was using the Zambato, and the Zambato they just was the uh, the blacksmith one, um, the Dragon Slayer. Dragon oh, Slayer. I forgot yeah. that we got that. We made for that them because we're like, oh, we have a ton of iron. Let's just make this because why not? So, so we did that, and it was basically just Twitch hitting them with the devastating that just destroyed it. That's that effectively was... build your own Twilight Sword. Yeah, but it made for a rather, you know, letdown of a fight, just because it was so easy compared to. I mean, we were playing with expansions, so we had some of the other things in there, but we fought a Lion God a couple of weeks before. We fought a level three Dung Beetle Knight, and those are just so much more menacing than this guy. <laughs> And uh, overall, it was just like, oh, yeah, we beat it. And it was even to the point where people in our chat were just kind of like, oh, that's it? Question mark. Surely it has another form. 
No, no. This is Sadly, that was its final form. Yep. This is my final form. I am a jellyfish stranded on the beach, dying in the sun very slowly. Why couldn't you have woken me up in 40 lantern years instead of 20? Yeah, I also think, like, an interesting mechanic, like, so we talked about things that can make this better. I think if his hit location deck was smaller and had the two, because I think people have come to realize that slower weapons are better, so, especially if you use a slow weapon, you, you ignore his trap card, pretty much. Like, mm. it doesn't matter, you're hitting one card at a time. But if, well, like, especially we play with the we had the wisdom potion out, so we saw whatever the trap one of the trap cards were there, and we're like, oh well, let's just mitigate this by doing a one speed slow attack and then reshuffling it because we definitely don't want to draw two trap cards. Yeah, but that's because the wisdom potion is obscenely good. Yeah, uh, but like besides that, that like if the deck was the hit look at like there was a lot of duplicate cards in there that just had some different flavor text, like. If they got rid of all those duplicates, you just you just skim down the deck a little bit, and you have more chances of getting these unique mechanics. Indeed, uh, indeed. Yeah. I also think maybe the basic action should attach stolen dreams. That would be an interesting mechanic, just to get that out there a little bit more. Would make it more threatening. But we're uh, we're not sure what Pooch is going to do to fix it. Um, so you know, I, I think on the whole, it's fair to say you guys are not that impressed with the Watcher overall. Mechanically? Mechanically, I like it. It's just, when it boils down to it, he's just too weak. That's what I meant. I mean, theme-wise, and the style, and all of that kind of stuff, and the flavor, and and the way the bits and pieces should work, are great. It's just, this thing is a bag of air. Correct. No, it's a bag of, what was it, hydrostatic fluid. True, true. So, how about you, Fen? How do you feel about the Watcher? Oh... I was waiting for you to ask. So, I think in a relatively well-designed core game with some problems, you know, some of them being addressed, I think that the Watcher is the single biggest flaw in the entire thing. Now, my main reason for this is that this is a nemesis monster that has not one, not two, not three, but four silver bullets. Technically, five if you want to include how spears work against it, trap cancelling. But so, first of all, you've got the Twilight Sword, you've got Retinues, you've got um, the ability to pull the Watcher and wake it up at Lantern Year 20, where it's ridiculously weak. Like at 25, it's a quite a fright, but at 20, it's just pathetic. But also, and this is my personal favorite, and you you can go out and you can look around a board game geek, you can look on Reddit, you'll find stories like this around the place. The Watcher has a 25-card hit location deck. Now, I've been through this and checked, and look, you've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 14 locations that can be critted. So you wake a, awaken a watcher on Lantern Year 20, which most people tend to do the first time they play, and potentially you can crit it 10 times and kill it. How people have done this have – my favorite is they've turned up with a giant pile of founding stones and just pelted the thing to death. <laughs> That's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> it's just like it's, – it's like – you know, this terrifying monster turns up and suddenly the crowd goes, boo, boo, which just starts chucking rocks at it. And it's like, <laughs> and it just 
shrivels up and dies. Um, so I, I it, it's too vulnerable to critical hits, really. It's it's it, uh, this is kind of part to go towards the Twilight Sword with the deadly in that. But I actually think um, in in the core game we've got exactly two monsters designed to be immune to critical hits. The first one is the Butcher, which is taken the sensible route of this. I it has almost no locations with a lantern on it. It had none in the original design. It has one now. Yeah, that's how you make a monster immune to critical hits. The Butcher's super frightening because of it. Um. The Watcher doesn't even have any luck tokens, does he? He's got, like, no tokens whatsoever. Just straight what you get. Um, and the other way you could design is in the way that the Golden God of a Thousand Eyes is designed, which have you guys ever... Um, you haven't ever fought him, have you? But have you had a look at him? I have not even looked at any of the cards, to be honest. Uh, it's not to do with the cards. Uh, I'll just tell you, the Golden God... Um, which is a phoenix in design with a specially designed AI deck and some extra traits and things like that to make it very dangerous. It's probably the hardest fight in the core game. It's designed to be almost immune to critical hits because it has some extra luck tokens. Um, for fun, the pair of you, would you like to guess how many luck tokens it has? Three. Okay, we have three. I'll, I'm going to say like eight. Right, okay. So Matt, you're closest without going over. Um, both of you are out by several magnitudes. It has 2,000 luck tokens. Oh, that's it? Yes, that's it. So you cannot crit it unless you somehow create a survival with 1,999 luck and or get some dev- deadly in there, etc., etc. Uh, theoretically possible to do that. You could get a survivor to that kind of luck, but the chances of doing it are so unbelievably small. I think it's more likely that the Earth will end before it happens. Um, but that, that, still that phoenix, that's, that's how Poots has made it immune to critical hits. You can pelt it to death with founding stones again. So, you could give the Watcher luck tokens, but he would not remove its weakness to founding stones. So, I am of the opinion that these critically hit locations, there's too many of them in the deck. Far too many. Uh, as you said, Josh, several of them are duplicates. Um, we should just be trimming out these duplicates as cool as it is to have all these different locations. The traps are basically as likely to turn up as they are against any of the other Nemesis monsters who have around 12 to 14 card hit location decks, I think. Somewhere around that number. I think the hand has more. Um, it's just a, it's just, this, this monster is too weak. It doesn't have enough life. It doesn't have enough toughness. It's, uh, it has too many ways of making the fight easier, too many silver bullets. This is meant to be a big, climactic, awesome fight, just like really epic. And in actual fact, the really epic fights happen during the campaign. If you want super scary fights, then as you guys have said, you play expansions, you fight the Lion God, you fight the Dung Beetle Knight at level three. If you want exciting, scary fights in the core game, you go fight the three legendaries, the, um, the golden, the, 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 the golden knight cat, the, um, the mad god and the, the golden knight god of a thousand years. The watcher should be scarier. And there's really right now, you can win the campaign by farming level one white lions, building up a load of old tats, pickaxing up some iron, gathering as many founding stones as you can by not using them and just this watcher just falls over. I am of the opinion myself that the watcher needs a serious rehaul. Like frankly, the hit location deck needs to be redone 
Um, I think that the Watcher should not only have the life total, but you should have to remove the AI deck as well. I don't like that mechanic in life, that life replaces the AI deck entirely. I think it should be in addition to the AI deck. And um, also, it needs to be immune to founding stones. It just straight up needs to have text on it saying immune to founding stones on its traits. You know, just no thank you. It's 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 an ethereal wraith-like creature. These stones should just pass through it mostly harmlessly. Yeah, I think immunity to founding stones would be a really cool uh, feature of it. Yeah, it, it is cool. It's I mean, I have to admit, it's just basically a straight like bandage onto an exploit that is kind of difficult to do because you know it's rare that you'll get that many founding stones piled up. But you know, come on, I mean, come on, who, who wants the last boss to turn up and be pelted to death like some country bumpkin no one what if they removed the crit location the the crits like the butcher but added if you do a crit you just get to do embolden because that's all the that's all the crits do is let you embolden so some mechanic where like if you would have critted you just do normal damage and you get to do embolden or something like that and that way you can still use the fountain stones but it would just basically give you a free embolden and not do anything else so you're saying that oh, the Watcher would have a trait that says when the Watcher suffers a critical hit, it does not suffer a wound. Yeah. That would work. That would make the critical hits do something. They could actually remain as they are with the extra effects that they have and bits and pieces. Um, and it would impact a little bit on the Twilight Sword, because the Twilight Sword, obviously, one of the things it does is it gains deadly at rank six or higher to help you crit the um, Watcher more often. So maybe the trait should be um, if you crit, if you score a critical hit against the Watcher, you do not score a wound unless you're wielding the Twilight Sword. I think that makes the Twilight Sword cooler as well. Yeah, that would be cool. Kind of excited about using Twilight Sword if if it was one of the only ways to wound the Watcher up by critting. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, right, would somebody like to talk about what happens after you kill the Watcher? I gotta find my book. I think I have that here. So, Aftermath, uh, if you beat him, which you should, you have the victory. With a terrific hiss, the Watcher deflates onto the floor. A moment passes, no longer than the single beat of a heart, before lanterns all over the chamber explode in a dazzling array of colors. An intense, luminescent goo washes over the survivors, and they feel triumph. All living survivors gain plus one permanent strength, then black out. Oh, the trap gets triggered. So Blackout is uh, another page in the rulebook here, which says, All at once and without warning, the collected sum of the settlement's lanterns go black. The settlement is plunged into darkness. Congratulations and thanks for playing. You have completed the Kingdom Death Monster Core campaign. Without the lantern light and the Watcher's powerful presence, monsters descend into uh, without end to devour the settlement. There is no hope for the survivors. However, if you like, you can continue to the bitter end and die magnificent deaths. The settlement gains the exhausted Lantern Horde location. It has the rules for continuing the campaign until its ultimate demise. Good luck. And basically those rules subsist of you just start fighting monsters in toughness order until you can't go anymore. And you don't heal anything. You can't make any more gear. You can't endeavor. That's pretty much it, no? Um, Yeah, although what most people do is either they wrap up the campaign and leave it there, or um, they Phoenix Loop which we discussed in the Phoenix episode, but essentially they reset the timeline and have a nice easy time second time around. 
because the Watcher was pretty tough the first time. And Matt, what happens when you uh, get defeated by the Watcher? Uh, one second. So if you get defeated by the Watcher, with a great inhalation, the Watcher greedily consumes everyone and everything before traveling for an eon. Nom, 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 nom. <laughs> Ultimately seeking a new place to hibernate. The time of the settlement has come to an end. Its people and history are forever lost. Game over. And game over is another whole thing. Are we going to get into that? I briefly just mentioned, like, so game over, all it means is you check off the lost settlement box on the settlement sheet, and then there's actually some triggers after you lose so many settlements. You get some bonuses, kind of. Um, and it gives you oh. how to skip the first story showdown, but you never want to do that anyway, so. Yeah, nobody wants to skip. Uh, skipping the prologue fight, no matter how tired and boring it might feel for you, is always a mistake, because these quick start rules kind of punish you for skipping the prologue. Okay, so should we talk about um, people of the Lantern as a whole, and then just do a quick look at the variants that are at the back of the book? And then we can call it. So what did you want to say about people of the Lantern as a whole? I think to note, like, story-wise, People in Lantern, there's really one story event on the whole timeline. Besides oh, Hooded Knight, which gets triggered by that, and then you have Watch. That's that's it. There's no real theme story through it. I, I don't know how much the other two campaigns are. I think there's more story events that kind of overarching the whole thing. But yes. for that, it's just yeah. two events. I, I can say there is tons of story in the other two. A lot of um, the great telling story by actions and what happened um, and lots of events that build up and, and it's the stories I of both of them are really well done like very good the people of the lantern feels almost empty in comparison yeah, th- there's yeah it's much a there. very very base core game I mean it's got the mechanics in place it's got the concepts in place but it's the it's the stepping point this is just the beginning it certainly is, and that, that is fair to say. Um, it is, it's obviously, it's the campaign that Poots designed first, so it's a bit of a, showing a bit of his learning process. And it doesn't matter so much that the story is quite so light here, um, and so open, uh, because it, it gives the world an emptier feeling that there's a lot, and a lot, a lot of space and a lot of nothing which there kind of is when you look at what's going on. There's just huge spaces of just twisted trees or strange pillars, but not a lot happening apart from the occasional monster stalking through them. So it's good at evoking that kind of feeling of emptiness, nihilism and dread in many ways. Um, but I will say I'm of the opinion once you start playing the alternate timeline campaigns, you do notice there's a significant difference in the quality. And in particular, People of the Stars, which was written by Anna, is, in no offense to Adam, but People of the Stars is phenomenally well written. Really, really good. It, it makes the other two... There's a, there's a lot of reasons why most people go buy the Dragon King expansion, and People of the Stars is all of them. A lot of them like the big dragon figure and have no idea, but th- that's the reason why it's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I meant like the experienced people who've played with the expansion. They generally will agree that like it is you're buying it for that campaign and to melt your um, tyrant. To melt your heart? No, to literally melt your tyrant. I heard about that, Ben. Sad times. Any other comments on about People of the Lantern? Oh, I think it's the worst of the three campaigns. 
Um, definitely. I think that in general terms, it's a not a bad thing at all. Um, when you consider this was like Poot's first board game, really. Um, I think that as a whole, it needed one more quarry monster, really, to kind of hang things together. Because it does feel very grindy when you play it, because you end up sort of coming to the conclusion that the phoenix is just too much risk for the reward, and the antelope is not something you can hunt all the time because of the times you get hit by a white lion that's a higher level. Um, so that's a real kind of problem with it. Not enough quarry monsters. I actually think five quarry monsters is the right number, but four would have been a reasonable compromise. Nemesis-wise, uh, I think. All three of the reoccurring nemesis monsters, the Butcher, the Kingsman of the Hand, um, are very well done. They've got a lot of character. Um, I do think the Hand should have had different AI decks depending on the level you fought it at because it's uh, it's an amazingly cool fight the first time you fight it. Um, but uh, <sighs> um, it, it gets very boring, as I'm sure you guys agree. Um, and I do, I, I, before I can, I just need to stop for a moment because there, there's somebody in chat that I just need to say something. Woof. Okay. People of the Sun is the second best of the campaigns. And do not feel bad about getting the Sunstalker instead of the Dragon because yes, People of the Stars is the most, the best of the campaigns. And I love the Tyrant. I love People of the Stars, but I would give the Dragon King expansion an eight out of 10 overall. I give the Sunstalker expansion a 10 out of 10. So you've not made the wrong choice. In in rank order, I think Sunstalker is the best expansion, then Gorm, then Dung Beetle Knight, and then the Dragon King. Sorry. Where was I? Ranting and raving about stuff. Oi. How dare you? I don't rant. I don't rave. Um yeah, so it's it shows. It shows that he's he was learning, he was designing, he's improved, he's refined. There's there is some great stuff in this, and we've been able to talk for many like weeks now on just on the core campaign which shows that there is a lot in there that is great um and it it bodes very well for the future that he is improving on this and and getting better ultimately until 1.5 comes out i'm not going back to people of the lantern and i and i will be examining 1.5 very closely um to consider because i may not even i may only play 1.5 people of the lantern once if it's not challenging enough because at this point now, I feel that it's the least interesting part of the game to explore. Matt, any thoughts on People of the Lantern? No, I think we hit on pretty much everything. It's uh, not the strongest of the campaigns, but it's definitely the starting point, and it's still good nonetheless. It could just use a few work in some spots, just like the Watcher, really. The Watcher really is the biggest letdown of the entire thing. But other than that, it's a solid campaign for you know a fun game. Yeah, I only have like negative things to say about it in comparison to the other material from the same game. Right, and I have yet to play those as well, so that could definitely be playing into my comments there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think we're going to need to wrap up there, and we will talk about the variant campaigns um, in the future instead. Yeah. Uh, so unless anyone has anything else they want to finish off with the uh, um, thing, or do we, do we have time for any questions from chat? If chat has any questions, go ahead and shout it out now, guys. Otherwise, we're going to start doing our little wrap-up here. Josh, is there anything else that you wanted to say? Well, hopefully we see something cool with uh, the changes to 1.5. 
I mean, it, it, uh, Fen, you pointed out uh, last week the uh, the great game hunter has a watcher uh, scarf on, so be interesting to see what happens with uh, the gear we can make from the watcher or something like that. All right, Fen. Anything else or no? Uh, I've said my final words. All right. So thank you everyone for joining us. This was our presentation of the Great Game Hunters podcast, where we go through the ins and outs of Kingdom Death. This was our completion of the. People of the Lantern campaign with the Watcher, as well as the campaign overview in general. And we thank you all for joining us. Uh, please stay tuned next time around. It should be in two weeks. Same time, same channel, where we're going to be going into what exactly, guys? We haven't figured out exactly, but we want to cover a little bit more of the base game before we start getting into the expansions. So we'll probably be talking about uh, settlement events and things like that. So it's going to be a mix mosh of uh, just different parts of the game that we didn't really go into. Innovation, settlement events, hunt events, all the little parts that we've kind of talked about briefly but haven't really gone into in depth. Awesome. So join us in the future for that, guys. Other than that, please check out all of our streams here. Uh, our current stream we're doing right now is Twisted Gaming, where we do board games and other tabletop events. Fan, you want to plug your stream here? Uh, yeah, um, I paint um, on an irregular schedule at the moment because I've really only just started. But uh, I can be followed over at um, Fensaunic. Um, the link is in chat there. But it's uh, twitch.tv slash Fensaunig, which is F-E-N-Z-A-U-N-I-G. Um, I painted Alistair most recently, which can be seen on my Instagram. Exactly the same name um, for Instagram. Uh, and I will be painting Lucy on this weekend, depending how I can fit it around my Kingdom Death campaign, because we're fighting two lonely trees in a row and then a dung beetle knight tomorrow. Level three, dung, of all of them. All at the same time? One after another, yeah, in the same lantern year. Because, I mean, apparently you can encounter the lonely tree and kill it lots of times in a row. No, you need to put two of them on the board with the DBK and just fight them all three at the same time. I don't have enough AI decks, and that also doesn't sound fun. Sounds like game over. You just make the tree attack the DBK. The tree doesn't attack the DBK. I mean, you know, there's tree. The tree hungers for 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 survivors. DBK has no heart. All right, it doesn't so, know love. So thanks everyone for joining us for the uh, Great Game Hunters. Join us back in two weeks for our next podcast. Otherwise, join us tomorrow for a special, special stream. For a very special day. Uh, so join us at about 4 p.m. Eastern time for that. Otherwise, on Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern time, it's going to be our next spotlight session. I believe that's to be determined right now, right, Josh? Correct. Uh, join us Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern time for our continuation of Twitch Plays Kingdom Death going into Lantern Year 4. Uh, going to fight the Dragon Tyrant. Uh, on top of that afterwards, Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Twitch Plays Descent, transitioning over to Friday at, at some point in time, the Panda Show going on. And uh, finally, I would like to point out that this stream and all of this week's streams have been brought to you by Druid City Games and The Grim Forest, currently live on Kickstarter. We did the spotlight session of this. We had a fantastic time doing it, so guys, go check it out and give it a look. Other than that, thank you all for joining us. We hope to see you again next time. This is Twist Gaming signing off. I'm Matt. I'm Josh. I'm Josh. And I'm a jellyfish listening to an awkward silence.
Good night, everyone. Take care. Good night, everyone. Good night.